Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Thursday, May 19th, and today I'm speaking with Tina Wynn about the aftermath of the Pennsylvania primaries. Can Democrats pick up an open Senate seat in a tough election year with a six foot eight hoodie wearing Bernie Krat running against one of two Republican carpetbaggers who are now in the middle of a recount? And later on in the show, Tara Paul Mary stops by to talk about DC's gerontocracy and which Democrats are eyeing Nancy Pelosi's leadership position in the House if she ever decides to leave. We'll hear about all that and more on today's episode of the Powers That Be. Happy Thursday, everybody. Tina Wynn has been delivering some masterful coverage of the Pennsylvania Senate primary, the Republican one uh, in particular. (laughs) Tina joins us now. It's been 36 hours or so-ish since the voting has closed on the Republican side. It looks like we're in the middle of a recount between Dr. Oz, who is a TV uh, celebrity doctor that Donald Trump endorsed, and also a pretend uh, gun lover, <laughs> and David, quote, Dave McCormick, who is a billionaire hedge fund guy who moved back to Pennsylvania to uh, run for Senate. And I will call him David and not Dave because he's just posing for the primary. Thank you for doing this. <laughs> um, on the Democratic side, uh, six foot eight, goateed man, <laughs> John Fetterman won the Democratic primary. Is there any early sense as to who's got the advantage in this recount and who Fetterman will face in November in Pennsylvania? If it had been Kathy Barnett, the QAnon adjacent lady that Doug Mastriano had endorsed, he would have just like taken his giant feet and stomped his way into the Senate. (laughs) Unfortunately for him, he's going to get one of two candidates, Um, either McCormick, who, as you pointed out, is sort of a carpetbagger with tenuous populist credentials or Dr. Oz, who is Trump-backed, but also a carpetbagger with tenuously populist credentials. So either of these guys will come up against him with a lot of money, but a bit of an inauthenticity problem. Whereas if you look at John Fetterman, you know exactly who this guy is. He's got positions that are really progressive and one could tie him to being like, a proto member of the squad or whatever. Yeah, he's a Bernie, for most of his career at least, it's felt like he's been more of a Bernie Sanders guy. He's taken some more moderate positions in the primary. Right. And I think that reputation, if he reminds the voting populace what a Bernie Democrat looks like, Mm -hmm. it's been a while, then I think he will be successful. On the other hand, he has been a little bit sketchy with his health lately. Um, I was talking to some Pennsylvania people earlier this week, and he had suffered a stroke and he was in the hospital, but the lieutenant governor's office did not mention this. The campaign was the only one that said, hey, actually, our guy's in the hospital and won't be at his victory party. He's getting a pacemaker installed. And the Pennsylvania political establishment is going around being like, wait, um, our lieutenant governor is in the hospital with a stroke. Why did we not know this until like three days after it happened? So he's going to face a lot of questions about whether he's open to the public or whether he is going to be a little bit sketchy like that. I feel like the Fetterman stroke thing right before the vote 
I don't know. I feel like he got some sympathy out of that. I would say so too. It definitely didn't lead to any sort of like really big negative slam from Connor Lamb. Although I mm-hmm. feel like Connor Lamb, his opponent, more moderate guy. I think that he would absolutely be the type of guy who would have just been like, okay, yeah, I lost. Let's like try to defeat the Republican. Mm-hmm. But if I were a Republican facing off against Fetterman, I would definitely hammer that. So this is the theory of the case if you're a Democrat right now, if you're like a strategist or a pundit or whatever, and you're looking at the landscape of of the Senate, right? The Senate is divided 50-50. Joe Biden's approval ratings suck, but the Senate math is a little bit friendlier toward Democrats. I mean, Democrats are defending 14 incumbents, all in states that Biden won, and Republicans are actually playing more defense this cycle. They have to defend 21 of 35 seats. So the Democratic take on this is like, it's going to be really tough to keep the Senate or, or to get a majority in the Senate for that matter. But the one thing they can hold on to is the Republican Party is the party of Trump. It's the party of white supremacists. It's the party that wants to ban abortion. It is like all of these culture war things that in the era before Donald Trump didn't really flare as harshly, at least, as the defining thing in a midterm election are now there. And so if Democrats can capture normie voters and maybe swing voters, you know, in cases like Pennsylvania, maybe they have a chance. The flip side of that argument is good fucking luck because the economy is always the number one issue. Like it's just always the number one issue. And this year that means inflation. Fetterman could be an exception uh, because the two candidates he's facing are first time candidates who are obvious carpetbaggers. At the same time, the headwinds are just very, very difficult for Democrats. Exactly. And in Pennsylvania, and I don't think you'll see this echo too much in other states, the Republican governor's Mm -hmm. nominee, Doug Mastriano, is a screaming Christian nationalist, January 6th insurrectionist, storming past the police barricades at the Capitol guy. This is not hyperbole. These are things that he actually did. The Pennsylvania GOP now has to deal with a party that will be primarily defined by this guy. And whatever pretzels Ozzie McCormick have to twist themselves into, it's going to be kind of evident that they either have to distance themselves from the man that the base picked versus full-heartedly embracing what they're doing. You're starting to see a little bit of that happening with the race because um, Trump, I think, put on Truth Social that Oz should claim that the election's a fraud and declare victory right now because mail-in ballots that are being counted right now are clearly illegitimate. But Oz is not doing that. And if he did, it'd be way too late for him to make any impact by that statement. I'm reading um, This Will Not Pass, which is the new book that, that Jonathan Martin and Alex Burns put out. And maybe this is in my head because I just finished a chapter about David Perdue and Kelly Loeffler in Georgia in the runoff. And, you know, these are two very establishment country club Republican types who in that runoff election in 2020 were caught between trying to run the best pragmatic campaign they could to win the runoff versus the fact that Trump's drumbeat of the election was stolen. And so they were realized that they had to get the Republican base in the runoff to come out to vote, while also not losing them by saying that Joe Biden was the rightful president. That was just the sort of like embryo of where all the Stop the Steal stuff came from eventually January 6th. And I just find it hard to believe that whether it's Dr. Oz or David McCormick, they're not going to do whatever election truther Doug Mastriano says because they need the Republican base at the end of the day. Do you disagree? The big question is exactly how much of the base is this 
election truther, we don't even like Fox News crowd. Mm-hmm. Because if they can turn out everyone who's not that, they probably have a chance. Like whoever voted for Dr. Oz is clearly not the type of guy, person who would vote for Kathy Barnett. Mm-hmm. Whoever voted for, you know, right. David McCormick is definitely not the type of person who'd vote for Kathy Barnett. It's all about voter enthusiasm at that point. Mm -hmm. Maybe Dr. Oz could whip it up. One person told me that he was a lot more palatable among the suburban woman, Mm -hmm. like, ring around Pennsylvania. Oh, yeah, forever. Yeah, Exactly, exactly. So if he can, like, walk that line, he'll probably pull it off. McCormick, I don't know. That's still a bit of an open question. Yeah. But the problem, though, is that they're going to face a bunch of diehard people in the base who don't even think they're legitimate. I don't think Kathy Barnett's conceded. I think she told someone she wouldn't recognize whoever won the nomination and wouldn't support them. And Doug Mastriano, if my MAGA senses are right, is going to actively spend his campaign bullying whoever that nominee is, being like, why aren't you MAGA enough? You're not loyal enough to the base. You're not loyal enough to... Actually, I wouldn't even say they're not loyal enough to Trump because Kathy Barnett said something, and this is going to be my next piece, Mm -hmm. noting that Oz was the guy who received the Trump endorsement, yet Oz is like barely squeaking by McCormick at this point. And it's because Kathy Barnett presented herself as a viable alternative. And she said in a debate that, paraphrasing here, the MAGA movement doesn't need Trump. President Trump changed himself to meet our movement. All right, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back after this. Republicans control both chambers of the of the Pennsylvania legislature. Um, Mastriano will be running uh, against Josh Shapiro, the Democrat, the Attorney General of Pennsylvania, to become the next governor of the state. If Doug Mastriano wins the gubernatorial race in Pennsylvania, I think at that point too we can assume both chambers of the Pennsylvania House and Senate didn't swing Democrat either. Then you have full Republican control of the Pennsylvania. Governor's Mansion and State House in the year 2024. And the governor of the state is a man who didn't breach the Capitol on January 6th, but was in the crowd and breached the Capitol barrier and has been subpoenaed by the January 6th committee. This is an election denier who guaranteed would do everything in his power to switch the results of an election in Pennsylvania, you know, the slate of electors, whatever it is, stop the steal. Uh, like th- that will be ground zero. And I think that's more almost more of a long tail important story here than whoever wins the Senate race. But that's just me over here worrying about democracy. (laughs) No, 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 no. That's absolutely the bigger story here. It's funny that it it started off with like, oh man, what happened to these two billionaires? But yeah, yeah, I think unfortunately they sort of proved the cynical nature of political elitism that like if you pay enough money in a state that has an open seat, you can probably buy yourself a Senate seat. And I think that within the base, there's such a giant turnoff against that, that they're running towards people like Mastriano. And one final depressing note for listeners of the pod, Mastriano can appoint a secretary of state. Oh, lovely. So the guy who literally writes how elections should be written, how election ballots should be counted. That's right. That's right, Pennsylvania, they're appointed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're appointed. It's not an elected position. If you're a Democrat and you are beguiled by a 
interesting, appealing, relatable candidate like John Fetterman. There will be other Democrats out there showing up in your feeds uh, with glossy ads like soliciting your donations, possibly in states, districts, or races they cannot win. (laughs) If you are a Democrat who cares about democracy and also right now abortion rights, I mean, several Democrats that I've talked to over the last couple weeks have said, please send your money to Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin. If Democrats lose (laughs) the governorships in these battleground states in the year 2024, heading into 2024, they are fucked, uh, for lack of a better word. So apologies for swearing for those of you uh, driving your kids to school. But, you know, sometimes alarmism is important. Thank you, Tina. (laughs) (laughs) Bye. Now let's take a quick minute to see what's going on with Tara Palmieri on Herbie. What's really going on in Washington right now? Thanks, Peter. So this week in the Washington Mall, it was a lot about succession. I started off with a scoop that Judy Woodruff, anchor of PBS's NewsHour at 75, has decided that she will step down from the anchor desk after the midterms and pass the baton to two younger journalists, um, Amna Nawaz and Jeff Bennett. And by younger, I mean they're in their 40s. This is a big deal because Judy Woodruff is basically a DC institution. She's probably as powerful as, you know, any speaker of the house slash leader of a caucus. I mean, she is very veritable DC institution. So for her to step down, it caused a little bit of earthquakes in DC. Then it kind of led us into thinking about who else is like the grand dam of DC besides Judy Woodruff. That would be the speaker of the house, Nancy Pelosi. She's 82. It is a gerontocracy in DC, as you know. Our president is 79. Mitch McConnell is 80. We've got senators like Chuck Grassley, who's running for re-election, and he's 88 years old, okay? He was born in the 1930s. These people have a lot of power. He is a chair on the Judiciary Committee. And so it's kind of like, now everyone's sort of wondering, okay, when are they going to pass the baton to the next generation, right? Like, when is it going to happen in DC? The first person that everyone is really talking about is Nancy Pelosi. She kind of made it clear in the last speaker race that this would be her last one and that she'd be ready to let a younger generation lead the caucus. Now, what's likely to happen is that the Democrats won't win the House, so that person won't be speaker, but they'll be minority leader, right? Nancy Pelosi is not expected to stay on as minority leader. It looks like she's running again, but it's still unclear. But if she says she's not running again, it'll be difficult for her to raise money. And she is phenomenal at raising money. Until she makes her move, she's going to be keeping them close to vest. Until then, there's lots of jockeying on the Hill. And it's kind of funny because it's sort of involving like very Tracy Flick style electioneering, you could say. Hakeem Jeffries of New York. He is a very ambitious congressman from New York. He's from the exact same district as Chuck Schumer. He is vying to be Speaker of the House or House Minority Leader. And obviously that would make the two leaders of our congressional body, the Senate and the House, both from New York, which is a bit of a geographical issue. But, you know, to sweeten the soil, Hakeem Jeffries has been sending out cheesecakes <laughs> to members. And then Catherine Clark, who's the assistant speaker of the House, she too is looking at that position. And she's a great fundraiser as well. She actually outraised Hakeem Jeffries, but they're pretty much neck and neck in terms of fundraising. And that's a big appeal, you know, when lobbying your fellow members to vote for you because that money goes to the entire caucus. And then there's, you know, Adam Schiff, media gadfly. Um, <laughs> 
He's also been positioning himself as someone who could outraise the crew and be minority leader or speaker of the house. So there's a lot of jockeying going on right now as everyone sort of waits on Nancy Pelosi to eventually pass the baton. Obviously, passing the baton to the future speaker is a lot bigger than the future minority leader, but we may not know what she plans to do and she may just run for re-election and step down. Who knows, she may hang on as minority leader. Crazier things have happened. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, and Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13. 